I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, welcome back to the Out of Spec podcast. We are joined here with John Volker, who uh, has run Green Car Reports, some editing there, and Car and Driver, and just one of the best EV journalists in the market, um, just journalists in general. So we're very excited to speak with you, John. I, of course, am Jordan Schieffer and uh, Kyle Connor. And um, yeah, this is just you know, an Out of Spec guest podcast where we just love to talk to some of the people in the industry and really get a feel of what others are doing in the space. And with EVs on the forefront of nearly every subject, um, we like to bring in some EV experts. And um, John, we just love to you know talk with you and hear maybe give us a brief synopsis of I guess what you say you do. Like when someone asks what you do for a living, how do you reply to that question? Um, I drive new cars. I write reviews of them, and I talk incessantly about the auto industry, why it's important, why it's in this interesting transition point right now, um, and Yes, I can tell you which compact crossover to buy if you ask me. But the first question, and I bet you guys get this too. First question, when someone says, hey, what do you think of the 2022 so-and-so is, so are you actually looking for alternatives in this segment? Or do you really just want me to validate a choice you've already made? Um, I there's an aunt I don't talk to anymore because I asked her that. <laughs> it's but. so true though, because at the end of the day, look, I think it's probably 50% or more of the new car research is for purchase validation or for affirmation that they either are making or have made the right choice. And honestly, the other 50% is probably split into two different categories, actual vehicle research, comparing different models, really open to different choices. And the other entertainment these days has become such a large part of cars. We've oh, seen yeah. car reviewers um, you know, branch out to more lifestyle pieces, more 
uh, you know, a, a little bit away from journalism. And I think we kind of blend a little bit of this together. We, we definitely are on the side of testing more so than lifestyle pieces because we want to know how quick cars charge, how far they go, you know, actually benchmarking them. Um, but this is such an interesting world that we're living in. Before we get too deep, though, John, you have to explain because you've been in the EV game well before we even, uh, you know, could probably even drive. And so can you explain what the early days of EVs were like? Because a lot of people think we're in the early days, which honestly we, we still are. But what were the true OG early days like in the EV world? I'm going to assume you're not asking me about 1890 to 1920. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, depending on when you were, no, yeah, of course. Yeah, I may have silver hair, but yeah. Um, I, I am old enough to remember the first flush of mid 70s cars. Um, I was in high school when does the notion of a Sebring city car mean anything? Little no, what is that? square two seater wedge shaped doorstop kind of vehicle on 12 inch wheels, basically trailer wheels. Um, that was a very limited speed, limited range city car, hence the name. But um, in the wake of the 1973 oil crisis, there was a little bit of a flourishing of EVs, mostly very small, mostly not really vehicles people would want to drive. But when you had to line up and wait half an hour to get 10 gallons of gasoline and uh, in some states, when the gas crisis came, they alternated. If you had even license plates, you could fill up on this day, odd license plates that day. Um, electric cars were sort of the one way where you didn't have to do all that. Um, but they were limited by lead acid batteries. You know, technology has been around at that point for more than 100 years. And it wasn't really until the 90s when we started to see nickel metal hydride and then the 2000s with lithium ion, the electric cars of any variety beyond sort of small weird two seaters became practical. Um, obviously the first one was, was the EV1, um, which was built in response to a whole load of California regulations that said, you the big automakers have to sell a certain number of vehicles that have zero tailpipe emissions. Um, the automakers, made the case that each of these vehicles that they sold under that rule cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to build. They just weren't production ready at the time. But a very famous film, Who Killed the Electric Car, has kept the EV1 with us as an example of the first electric car that people really loved. You know, two-seater, very aerodynamic, um, and GM had the smart idea of putting it with celebrities and actors and influencers, before the word influencer even existed, um, influencers in the late 90s in LA, and they took to it really well. And then when GM took them all back and crushed them and got caught on camera doing so, um, it became a very big deal. But it did seed Californians with this first set of, okay, electric cars are here. We've seen them. We know people who had them. Um, which really set the stage for 2010 and thereafter. So for the EV1, uh, did you ever have a chance to drive one? I never did. Um, I was not living in California at that point. Um, 
you, you may know Chelsea Sexton. Yep. Um, and yeah, and so Chelsea has driven them, worked on them. I think she was maybe in high school as a service tech at, at Saturn, helping to distribute the EV1s. She's really the OG in terms of EV1 lore and driving experience. I would love to drive one, but all the ones out in the wild are not operative. Like right, the Chrysler so they... Turbine cars, um, the manufacturer took the important component out before they gave them out to museums. So apparently there are two turbine cars, I think, in existence that function. I don't know if it's with original hardware, but I think Jay Leno has one. So I actually had the great good fortune to be at the Monterey, uh, the Monterey Car Week Pebble Beach Classic the year that that running Chrysler turbine showed up and it got a standing ovation from the crowd. And that's a tough crowd. Wow. This was, I yeah. think, 97 or so. The story was um, there had been, and I mean, the guy looked like a farmer. He was wearing bib overalls. And <laughs> at the Pebble Beach Concord, there are not <laughs> a lot of people who are doing that. So he was with this car. He had applied to be in the original program in 1963, didn't make it, but he'd always his whole life wanted one. And he bought it off the field, I think, at Hershey without its engine and just hung on to it. Leno heard about it. Leno obviously wanted one. And this is the story I got. I don't know if it's true, but it's a great story. Um, supposedly, Leno kept knocking on his door and the guy said, no, you know, we're not going to I'm not going to sell it. I just like having it. Leno finally said, would you be willing to give me right of first refusal if I can make it run? And the guy was like, well, maybe, yeah, I, I think about that, okay. And Leno got on the phone to Bob Eaton, who was then the chairman of Chrysler, and said, hey, I need a favor. And supposedly, the turbine rotor showed up the next week. Supposedly. I, that's I, insane. I mean, yeah. if that's true, that would be one of the coolest things in automotive uh, history. It was an amazing car. He did the trick. He balanced a nickel on the console and revved it to 50,000 RPM. <laughs> However, it, it also had the problem, like all turbine vehicles, that if you were wearing sneakers, when he revved it, it would melt your sneakers if you were standing <laughs> behind it. Uh, there's a lot of waste heat. And that turned out to be the problem with turbines. They're great at sort of steady speeds, um, but not quite so great for you know, the enormous power transients in modern traffic, kind of like fuel cells. Yeah, so we'll get to fuel cells in a bit because I do want your opinion on, on sort of this technology in cars. But back to EV1, um, yeah. I know you, you didn't drive one, but I think a lot of people forget that there was this big push, and maybe it's just sort of romanticized over the years, to have you know an electric driver community plug share i think was a thing back then or some sort of plug finder that was a physical piece of paper that showed who hosted the pattern oh, charger. Wow. Well, okay. yeah and so can you explain how charging technology has changed because back then it was these little paddle chargers of kinds now we use a physical standard but i think what a lot of people don't realize is the Tesla connector was designed before J1772 was a thing. Is that true? Yes. Um, like all 
automotive standards. J1772 took an immensely long time to get together, to take all the parties in the room, get their input, get them all to agree. And there wasn't really a need for it until the Volt, uh, the Volt with a V, damn it. Um, see my article <laughs> on why Bolt with a B is a really stupid name for a car following the Bolt with a V. Uh, and as someone with a surname beginning in V, this is near and dear to my heart. But um, until the Volt and the Leaf hit the market, there was really no need for J1772. So um, when the Tesla Roadster came out in 2008, what did you do? Um, I think the Tesla Roadster has a standard Tesla plug, yeah? The no, original one? has its weird Roadster connector, and then the Model S had its own. Ah, uh, so the Model S was the first one in 2012. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, J1772 did get agreed on by sort of mid-2010, but Tesla by that point had gone ahead. There was also a prevalent rumor that Elon Musk decided J1772 was ugly, and he wanted a better-looking connector. I have not asked him that question. In fact, I've never asked him any questions. But um, the charging on the EV1 was inductive paddles, where you put a paddle into a slot. Not all the EVs of that era used the same charging technology. And there was, at least until recently, one surviving paddle charger somewhere in LA from really? that era, somewhere on a curbside. I, Chelsea will know. But um, if the auto industry did one thing right, it was to get together and say, look, we need a common standard. Any EV has to be able to charge at any public charging station. And so you got J1772. The challenge was for DC fast charging, that hadn't been developed. And Japan had this Chatamo standard developed separately. Um, so the LEAF came with J1772 here, and then sort of Chatamo is a separate connector here. Whereas the rest of the world said, look, we want to run all our communications through the existing logic that we already have in the car, right? Um, so we want to run that through the 1772 plug, and we'll just add a couple of DC pins. So you ended up with the sort of unwieldy thing that we have today. Um, but that one is the one that's going to win. And I noticed, in fact, today, Model S's, the revised Model S, uh, just unveiled in China, actually has a CCS connector. Yeah, so I think Taiwanese spec that was, it could be, it was some, uh -huh. some Asian country has, uh, you know, a revised taillight to be a little bit taller so you can get the CCS connector in there because current Model S taillight, at least for US spec cars, and I'm sure we'll yeah. be updated on soon, it's, it's just too small. But Model 3 and Model Y have been shipping to Europe with the CCS yep. connector for two years now, three years. So CCS is definitely the feature and well, we had this conversation with Matt Teske the other day. And what, what do you think about Tesla ditching their original connector and going with CCS? Because I, maybe some little background. You and I sat in like a four-hour car ride the other day and nerded out for ever <laughs> going to Palm Springs to drive. That was vehicle. great. I love I love meeting people who speak our language. Yeah, it was so much fun. And we had Dan from What's Inside who was kind of following along too, and he was pretty knowledgeable. And we had a really good car ride. Um, in a combustion vehicle, sadly, for an electric vehicle event. That's a whole other story. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, we spoke about Tesla opening up their supercharger network. And I know we're jumping ahead because I still want to go through the early days. 
But do you think we'll see two, one of two solutions, Tesla adding CCS plugs to the existing superchargers or them putting CCS plugs on their U.S. market cars? Do you think either of those will happen? Um, I think those are two separate issues. Tesla put CCS plugs into its European cars under heavy pressure from the regulators for the same reason that you have a USB-C charging uh, connector on your Apple phone in European markets, because they said, look, you know, single company connectors where you have to pay more money just to be able to charge your device and you can't charge it where everybody else can, those are not allowed. Um, consumer friendly. Um, and the same thing applies to the Tesla. So they had some legacy charging stations for Model S's and Model X's. Um, many of those have been converted over now Obviously, you can still charge an S and an X in Europe. But to the question of the US, Tesla now has hundreds of thousands of cars on US roads with the original connector, um, you know, 100% of them, basically. And so I do not expect, even if they were to switch over to CCS tomorrow for the 3 and the Model Y, I do not expect any of the existing superchargers to go away the there is some thought that there will be money available for public charging for building infrastructure making it available but it won't apply to tesla because they use a standard that only tesla can use so you know the rest of the public can't so there is a thought that tesla will quote open up its network i don't expect that to be providing tesla to ccs converters it could be but I think a much more likely and much more cynical uh, possibility, which appeals to me, is that um, Tesla will add some stanchions at the end of its rows. So if you've got 12 superchargers, add three more. You know, they probably pre-wired if they were smart or just, you know, add a little bit more electrical capacity, stick CCS stations on that. And if you want to be really cynical, you could say that Tesla will prioritize Tesla charging and throttle CCS charging whenever there are Teslas there, or worse, even, even more evil, cap it at 50 kilowatts, because 50 kilowatts <laughs> is a sort of standard. <laughs> um, and what better advertisement for a Tesla than driving in in your generic make electric car, plugging in, and then seeing somebody in a Tesla charge up in a third the time and drive away while you're still waiting as the clock ticks. But, I'd be so surprised if that's the case, but we'll get back to that because- Yeah, uh, I'm curious we, to know why you think that, but carry on. Yeah, so I think um, back to, sorry if our audio cut out there for a second, but just back mm -hmm. to the EV1 situation. Okay. This car obviously started it, GM took the cars back, movie was made. What happened after EV1? Because this has always been unclear to me. Um, you know, obviously we had the Honda Fit Electric, the original Leaf, the iMeve. Um, but what what happened in that time frame? Because there's a few years there where there's just no electric cars for sale at that point. Yes. So California revised its zero emission vehicle regulations after you had the EV1 you had some converted Chevrolet S10 pickup trucks. I'm forgetting off the top of my head what Ford did. Toyota had the original RAV4 EV, 
et cetera, et cetera. And so um, those cars were brought out in limited numbers, compliance numbers. They were all taken back, except for some of the RAV4 EVs. Toyota actually saw all the blowback that GM got. So there are a handful to this day of RAV4 EVs, the first generation out there. They're 20 years old now. The owners love them. Um, there's a repair community for them. I just um, saw one in Santa Monica less than a year ago, parked on the street. And I, I have pictures of it somewhere, but I'm sure I can link to it. And it was the most exciting thing. Mint car. Thing looked brand new. White, right? Yep. It was cool. Yep. Actually, was it white? It may have been brown. I want to say it was huh. dark gray. It could have been white. Okay. I have a picture of it. I can. Okay. It's not on this phone, but I'll find it. About 10 years ago, there was a guy named Mark Geller in San Francisco, a longtime EV guy. I drove his around San Francisco to do a, wow. quote, road test, which was great fun. Um but those cars, by and large, were taken back, vanished from the roads. Um, what happened in the meanwhile is that Mitsubishi put a lithium-ion battery pack into the iMeV. Very small car, adapted from a piston engine car, which was essentially sat on the platform of an extended smart. I mean, that's a little reductive, but it was an egg-shaped car had the three-cylinder engine under the rear seat, so you had a lot of interior room, et cetera. They convert that into an electric car, just 16 kilowatts of energy, about 60-mile range on the EPA. But all of a sudden, they had a few hundred of them running around Tokyo, and people said, hey, wait, a 60-mile EV with lithium-ion batteries, which have four times the energy density of lead acid and twice the energy density of nickel metal hydride, huh, maybe there's something there. And we started to get what is what was the start of the current wave. But the two main cars, I mean, I think they sold 2,500 iMeves or some number like that in the U.S. over the car's total life, poor little thing. And um, so you, know, you have Jim. six of them in our town. Yeah? Yeah, I've seen six different iMeves here in Fort Collins, Colorado still. And they, they're rocking. Um. Ask them if they're on their original batteries. They had some battery problems. Yeah, I bet they're not. But <laughs> um, I kind of like it just because it's a clever design. But um, they're not very fast. And if you turn on the air conditioning, you get about a 30% hit to the range. Anyway, <laughs> um, you had Nissan and you had GM. And really the history here is GM had kept a lot of its electric car work, a lot of the expertise in the company. They did some remarkable things in the EV1 that people hadn't done before. Um, and there was a lot of accumulated knowledge at great cost about how to build good EVs. Bob Lutz, who ran product at GM, one of the topics that would get him to spit nails was Toyota, because his take was Toyota gets all this green cred for the Prius, and all the Prius allows him to do is sell more inefficient everything else, including full-size pickup trucks, because Toyotas historically were not all that fuel efficient compared to the best gasoline cars. But they had all these Priuses, all the green people loved him, and he, he thought it was completely unfair. So GM was going to have its Prius, only it was going to be better, and it was going to be better performing and cooler. And that's where the Volt came from. This idea that you couldn't have a totally bad electric car, but you could have 
a plug-in hybrid, one that had enough range for, you know, daily commuting, but you could drive to San Francisco tomorrow if you woke up and decided you want to do that. The problem was they never figured out how to explain a plug-in hybrid. Everybody in this call probably gets plug-in hybrids, right? But my take for the average car shopper is the plug-in hybrid is really the uh, automotive engineer's response to a question from a regulator that no consumer has ever walked into a showroom and asked for. Hi, I'd like a car that allows me to drive electric for 30 to 50 miles, but still has a gasoline engine. No, it has <laughs> ever happened. People get hybrids because they're you behave the same. They just magic gerbils under the hood drink less. Yep. And people get electric cars because you plug them in like a phone, and when the battery's dead, the car doesn't go. These are easy concepts. Plug-in hybrids fall in the middle. You just lose people. So that was problem number one with the Volt. Then you had the Nissan Leaf, where Carlos Ghosn, for all of his um, challenges, should we say? Challenges. Um, he's now a refugee from justice in <laughs> Lebanon. But he did a uh, lot for Nissan with this Leaf. Oh, he saw correctly that electric cars were going to be the thing. His problem was just that fell into conflict with every car we make has to make bigger profits than the one that came before it. And making money on the first generation of a new technology is very hard, as Toyota will tell you. Supposedly, they didn't really break even on Priuses until the middle of the second generation. Gon was dead set that the Leaf was going to cover its costs by the end of its production run, which is why they're still using the same underpinnings 10 years later, albeit with a different battery and different sheet metal. Interesting. So, I mean, Leaf has really been an incredible story for the EV world because I think it was the first, right, look, the iMeV was just ugly for a lot of people and that wasn't a starter. Not to say the Leaf's really a looker either, but it was, you know, the Leaf had space. It was somewhat, it appeared safer. It actually had some get up and go. They drive not bad, to be honest. I'm a Leaf mm -hmm. fan. I like them. Um, and they had fast charging. So I think it was like the first relatively affordable car and the Nissan dealers had DC fast chargers put in at all of them very early on with those aerovironment charger looking things. And so those were cool. Um, but I think, you know, Leaf was like the only game in town. Uh, it was Model S and Leaf for a while, for years. Uh, if you wanted a full battery electric vehicle. I agree with you on Volt, by the way. Volt's an incredibly complicated seven clutch crazy system, but was actually a really good car. Uh, but like you would try and drive it on EV as much as possible. Otherwise it was so slow when you were just running out of combustion. And so- well, I would say the second generation Volt is really a good car. 53 miles of electric covers 90 odd percent. Agreed. And- they they made it a little bit less whiny. Um, they actually upped the engine power a little bit because of more power from the battery. So I'm a big fan of the second generation Volt, but I understand how it works. There was this interesting thing early on where a whole bunch of early Volts came onto the market, first generation cars. And on all of them, the screen said, you're Average miles per gallon over the lifetime of this car has been 35 miles a gallon, which mm -hmm. meant no one had ever plugged them in. And to mm -hmm. me, it's the big weakness of plug-in hybrids. 
Battery electric cars, you got to plug in or the car's not going anywhere. You do not have to plug in a plug-in hybrid. And certainly some of them, I am quite confident in saying a majority of them are rarely, if ever, plugged in. And totally if you look at the first generation Prius and to some extent, even the Prius Prime, you know, it's the high Prius with a sweet, sweet tax benefit. Yep. Oh, yeah, I guess it has a plug. Yeah, sure, whatever. Yeah, but you're look, just on those extra batteries. Extra that are batteries. Yeah. yeah. So, um, what did you think about BMW launching the i3 back in 2013? Was it when it launched in its first model year, 2014? Because this was yeah. German. This was their first you know, mass EV, essentially. It was incredibly expensive for them to make. Carbon tub. They went absolutely insane off the wall with this thing. I've owned three. I love them because they were so weird and quirky. But what was it like at the time? Because this is when you were really heavily involved with writing about electric cars, right? You were in the in the business at this point. So what was it like when the Germans got involved? BMW was really out on the forefront. Mercedes-Benz was the laggard. Um, Audi was somewhere in the middle, um, or VW Group. Um, but of course, they were still clean diesel. Um, the i3 was an interesting bet that didn't pan out. BMW, it came from, it's funny, I was just talking about this today with someone else. It came from something, the, the Project I or the City Car Project, I forget the name of it, Urban Project something, in sort of the late 2000s, looking at the fact that all these people were going to be moving to mega cities, mega city car maybe, um, you know, what kind of car would they need? Can't have emissions, has to be small and compact, but also has to be stylish and luxurious and sort of. And what they came up with was this car that had an aluminum platform um, with battery in it, carbon fiber tub, and they went to absurd. They flew the carbon fiber to Washington State to use yep. hydropower, et cetera. Um, it was a complicated vehicle to build. Um, I don't think many people really knew what to make of it when it came out because this was the company that makes ultimate driving machines. And here's this thing, funky styling that has four doors, but the people in the rear seat have to wait for the people in the front seats to get out and open their door. And the Very tires are about yay wide to reduce aerodynamic drag and so on and so forth. Um, I will say I went on the on the global launch drive of that and points for bravery. They picked Amsterdam. Have you ever driven in Amsterdam? I have. Yes, it's it's wild. And there's bicycles everywhere and you have these little tiny things you got to get through. Uh, you've got cars and trucks and big trucks, but you've also got buses and trams <laughs> and about a bazillion cyclists and the pedestrians, not to mention the skateboards. Um, it's crazy. <laughs> so we were driving and we got caught in rush hour. Amsterdam has a horrendous rush hour, it turns out. We got caught in the middle of it. And the guy I was driving with, we turned to each other and almost in the same voice said, this is the calmest, horrible rush hour I've ever had. And it sort of imbued in me, one pedal driving is a lot less stressful. There's no noise or vibrations. That sort of was the, okay, electric cars have 
all of these sort of subtle things that you can't sell in a showroom, but that people appreciate even if they can't articulate them. Mm, um, interesting. It, the thing was, BMW premised that car on the idea that batteries were going to remain really, really expensive. And so you had to go to great lengths to make the rest of the car really efficient. A lesson that the entire German industry seemed to have lost after that car. That's another topic. <laughs> now they just slap them in there. <laughs> yeah. But um, BMW bet wrong. Batteries got really cheap a lot quicker than they expected. I forget which investment bank it is. Um, one of the big New York ones is now on its fourth, if not fifth, downward version of its battery cost curve for 20 years. You know, because they said it will be at this level by 2025. Oops, that was 2017. You know, batteries have just gotten cheaper. They're probably plateauing now due to supply chain problems, raw materials, vastly increased demand for battery metals and so on. But for a long time, they came down and it wasn't necessary to do an I3. Plus for the American market, which is a huge chunk of BMW, very, very few Americans have ever sat down at the kitchen table and said, sweetie, we need to buy a limited function car that is only going to meet a subset of our needs as a family. What do you think? And that's what the i3 was. What, what do you think about BMW in the years after? Because they, they've had a few different approaches now on electric vehicles and just vehicle powertrain technologies in general for a, a time period when the i3 came out it was dedicated platform for each drivetrain technology then uh from let's say 2014 to 2020 they said we need one platform to do everything and now we have plug-in hybrid combustion mild hybrid series hybrid hydrogen and battery electric in one platform as the ix3 or x3 and x5 chassis uh, but now we're starting to see BMW iX and then i4 is an adapted combustion chassis. But we're starting to see finally the next battery electric vehicle from BMW since the i3, almost eight years after. Um, have you driven iX and i4? And what is your opinion on what that brand is doing uh, currently and what to expect from them in the future? Great topic. And it's funny because it followed from the i3 discussion that I had earlier today. So it's top of mind. Um, I break BMW's electric ventures into sort of three eras. The first one was 2007 or 8, whenever that project started, to 2016. If you remember, BMW did a hard reboot of its EV strategy in 2016. And what happened was they got a new CEO. The prior CEO had been very much a supporter of EVs and the idea that there would be a whole parallel I range of high technology, differently styled vehicles. When the new CEO came in, and I'm forgetting their names, but the longtime CFO, the financial controller for the company, finally got the new CEO's ear and said, you have to stop this madness. We are losing our shirt on electric cars. We cannot develop twice as many platforms as we now have. You know, BMW is a small company by global standards. They're not allied with anyone in a vast way. They'll do individual projects. So that message stuck. And in 2016, they said, right, we're going to shared platforms. We can make perfectly battery electric vehicles that are, number one, variants of our existing models. 
you know, the iX3, the electric X3 being the example there, um, can use the same platforms and it will save us a lot of money. Um, I don't believe that's true. I think the best electric cars all have dedicated platforms, but that's that's a separate issue. Um, and BMW essentially moved to there. The iX is an anomaly. That was intended to be their autonomous flagship, except the autonomous driving thing is proving a little slower than everybody has thought, probably 10 years slower. And so they had to kind of uh, rethink that and make it their premier electric vehicle. It is actually a dedicated platform, they tell me. You know, there's not a lot shared there with anything else, um, but it wasn't supposed to be electric first and foremost. It was going to be electric, but it was the autonomous stuff that really was going to be that car's reason for existence. The i4, um, setting aside the questions about BMW's new styling, uh, everybody has an opinion on that. Um, I, the i4 is obviously a battery electric version of the, is it four series grand touring? I think. Grand I, yeah. Yeah. I have, I have trouble keeping their sprawling range. Straight. It gets confusing. We all do. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. But, um, the thing is because it's carrying around extra weight that is necessary for the combustion versions, it's not that efficient of an EV. And that sadly applies even to the EQS, which is closer. But one of the things about BMW is I think in the process of proposing to sell the iX3 in the US and then yanking it because A, it was made in China, that was a problem. B, it only came in rear wheel drive and that's a problem in markets where it may actually snow. And C, it was clearly not gonna make the minimum 200 mile range on the EPA test cycles. So who would pay 50 grand for a rear wheel drive, 170 mile Chinese built BMW? And so they killed it. But I think they're realizing belatedly, you just don't get the ranges in EVs if you have to carry around a platform designed for something else. So now we have the Neue Neue Klasse, which is their all new platform for 2025 that Lo and behold, it's a dedicated EV platform. So that's kind of how I see BMW's evolution. Yeah, I totally agree 100% with you. I think we'll see a big shift towards battery electric. And while I've had major concerns about the company, I'm a BMW guy at heart. You know, I grew up driving them. I love the brand, really assimilated. And it was, it honestly was annoying that they didn't have any good electric cars until now we just drove jordan and i last week the i4 and the ix and wow. really fell in love with the ix i think that is a stellar vehicle even like it was one of those cars where you see it in person and you're like oh it's not as ugly as it like it just renders horribly i mean you go to bmw's configurator <laughs> we did this so went bad. to their configurator and the first thing that pops up is the ugliest thing known to man it's just the worst yeah they put like a base spec right up in the front yeah mm -hmm. anyway if you black it out it hides some of the stuff it's better but like the car drives really well the ev drivetrain felt good look we haven't done any charging testing we didn't do ranges we drove it around las vegas for a couple hours but like it's not um yeah i, I would say huge uh, hopes for bmw in the future but I think we've seen Volkswagen Group in this time frame really take this massive shift. You know, if we look at the, the past, present of EVs up until now, the ID3 was a transformative vehicle from a mindset standpoint inside of Volkswagen Group, I think. 
And mm -hmm. so they had some launch issues with that car. Now it's getting sorted out. We have ID4 being a huge success in the US. My opinion, I see them everywhere. They're holding their values really well. People are interested in them. Um, I, what's funny is when we produce an ID4 video, it outperforms Tesla videos, which is the first time that's ever happened for us. And so there's big, yeah, it's a huge interest in this car. <laughs> and maybe wow. we've just captured the ID4 market. But what do you think about Volkswagen Group going, of course, with, with Porsche and Rimats now, and of course, with Audi and the Volkswagen brand? Where do you see them in the position of the German leader in electrification, I would say, matching with some of the American guys? That's been a fascinating evolution to watch because they, they have gone through something of a similar learning curve, only in a much more compressed time frame. If you think about, I think it was 2016 when the Porsche Mission E was shown in Frankfurt. 16 or 17, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that was the day. I mean, Volkswagen hadn't sort of announced this big transition for its, its core brand. Porsche had announced the Mission E um, because Tesla and performance. Audi had announced the uh, e-tron because Tesla and family hauler. Um, so both of them were sort of saying, we can respond to this upstart over there. Um, but there wasn't really a sort of global sense of the entire company is on board. Then you have uh, Volkswagen coming in with MEB on which they're going to build 30 some models globally. Um, we saw the ID4 first, which was a very smart call. I think of it as a wagon, but we don't say the W word aloud because it will scare the shoppers. And, and um, <laughs> so true. So yeah, all right, sure, it's an SUV. Of course, it's an SUV, absolutely. Um, but um, the ID3 was really their launch. I think the challenge there is twofold. Um, they felt a need to differentiate it in some ways that after driving some of the competition feel a little needless to me. Um, everybody talks about the damn window switches. I still don't get that. Um, in, in an ID4, for those who may not have been in one, um, you don't have your usual four window switches. You have two window switches. And if you, the driver, wanna open a rear window, you have to push a toggle that flips them over to the rear and then push it again to get it back to the front. I don't get that. I'm sure there are very good German reasons with 68 letter names for why um, this is the appropriate response. No one else has seemed to do that. But um, my worry about the ID4 is really the software because VW's challenges with this new round of software and not just in the IDs, this is in the Golf 8 too. Um, it actually, if I were call my history, stop production of that car right on launch for a couple of weeks because the software was so glitchy. Um, software has not historically been particularly a German strength compared to say powertrains and handling. We'll see how that evolves. I know that the ID4 for the next 18 months is pretty much what you see is what you get on the hardware front. It's all the updates are gonna be in software, which may give you some range, which they promise will give you plug-in charge. I very much hope that's true. You would be surprised. You and I talked about a certain other mass market vehicle that is not going to have plug-in charge. 
I know. Well, we, we should get to that particular vehicle here in a second because you and I have both driven that as well. Um, I think, you know, from my perspective, we spent a month with ID3 in Europe just recently and really fell in love with that vehicle. And yeah, software is its biggest problem. I mean, at the end of the day, it delayed start of production for ID3, delayed start of production for Golf 8. Um, you know, I think the, both are great cars, by the way. They're just hindered by, uh, you know, their inherent software and, and yeah they are getting better over time but for example my dad has an id4 all-wheel drive it's his third one because he just like got the the first edition and he's like oh let me get the next one then all-wheel drive came out and they held their values well enough where he could switch oh. without losing anything so oh, right. yeah so he's got an all-wheel drive one now and he said anytime he drives over 90 miles per hour which isn't often but it's repeatable uh the whole thing comes up with the drivetrain malfunction every time and there's nothing wrong it just says total malfunction anytime. And then it goes away as soon as he dips below 90. And wow. so he's bringing it into the dealer. But I've heard this from other people where it's not even the UI and UX anymore because that stuff's gotten much better. And there's workarounds to the window switches now where if you hold the rear button down, you can control all the windows at once and you can use a two finger tap to put the heated seats on. So there's some tricks you can learn, which you'll learn if you own the car. Maybe that's not the right way of doing it, but there's workarounds. But like physical malfunctions coming up on the screen that's where it really i think impacts the ownership experience and i have a on on the meb um point i wanted to ask both of you guys um like when we review cars we're looking for something to give that car character like what's the personality of this car and as manufacturers start sharing platforms across you know in this case maybe 30 models what can we expect to differentiate them like what what's the point of reviewing um, a certain size crossover. If there's five other crossovers that all share the exact same platform, same motors, I mean, other than minor weight shifting, like what's what's to differentiate that in the future of EVs having their platforms that are shared like that? Well, I think we're already there with combustion cars, <laughs> CRV, yeah. CX5, it doesn't matter. Like you're, it's just like, which one has the dealership closest to your house at that point mm -hmm. and just get that one. Um, well, but, but you... more than that, it's this fascinating thing about the auto industry, which is what makes it so much fun to cover because it's this mix of functional requirements. You know, does it have legroom? How many cup holders does it have? Is there a third row? Can I get someone in the third row while sliding the second row forward with a baby seat? You know, and all of those sorts of things. And the poorly understood psychographics about what the brand means and what the brand says to everybody else. There's this, yep. So there was this great study, it's probably 20 years old now, looking at minivan buyers versus SUV buyers. Mm -hmm. Demographically, you cannot tell them apart. They all live in slightly above average household income, nice suburbs. Um, they all have 2.4 kids. They volunteer, yada, yada, yada. Psychographically, they're opposite poles. The minivan buyer says, this is an incredibly good tool for the way I live family life. The SUV buyer says, but what if someone saw me in a minivan? Oh my God, I will never drive that. So what does the brand say about you? How does the brand try to convince you that it's different? Because frankly, every compact crossover now has an engine between 1.5 and 2.5 liters with a transmission, an automatic of six to nine gears you know, optional all-wheel drive, they, they may be made in different factories, but it's all the same underneath. And you might maybe have one or two that have trailing arm suspension instead of struts. 
but you know they're all sort of honing in on this average anyway so yeah. how will vw and audi and skoda and seat and the rest differentiate their cars well how do they differentiate the gasoline ones yeah, yeah totally agree by the way i heard someone i don't know who it was i can't remember on twitter say like now ev reviews will have nothing to do with like driving dynamics or drivetrain that i totally disagree with because there's so oh. many intricacies to an ev it's so much more complex in my opinion than a combustion vehicle where we're looking at efficiencies we're looking at motor power on different curves we're looking at charging is such a big part of this now that i totally disagree with but to your point of like character of vehicle yeah, this is going to be so much more to touch points and less about drivetrain. And honestly, in the sports car world, it's about drivetrain. In the CUV world, honestly, it's about everything we're going into anyway. Yeah, it's, it's amazing the brand like loyalty that comes into play. I mean, there's there's people like my grandpa. He's 97, still drives. And basically every 20 years, he goes to a Chevy dealership and buys a car. And he, all it has to do is point A to point B. He, ironically, he's German, but just, <laughs> just it just has to get him from point A to point B. It doesn't matter what it looks. He doesn't even care about gas miles. It's just what car is on the lot. Okay, that looks good. Chevy tracks, great. So that's what he has. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Back in the days when people wore watches, some people wore a $9 plastic watch that told the time, and some people wore a $15,000 accessory watch. You know, it's yeah, the interesting thing though about the platforms. Supposedly, the Kia EV6 handles quite differently from the Hyundai Ionic 5. Same stuff underneath. Um, I've only read the British reviews of the EV6. We, I don't think anyone's driven one in the US yet. Um, I have, <laughs> <laughs> except I didn't drive it in the US, I drove it in Europe. Ah. I drove European spec, doesn't count totally different. Yeah, well. Yeah, so so the Euro spec and US spec they claim will be different. Same with Ionic Five. So I'm sort of apples to oranges. But in my impression, the two cars I drove, the EV6 was super sharp and real sporty, and the Ionic Five was super floaty and very comfortable, but still handled itself extremely well on the back roads. I thought. I, I agree with that. I I have heard from my British colleagues that in fact the EV6 is the driver's car. The Ionic is is the family car or the the comfort car. Um, you know, Hyundai is coming great strides in suspension and control and road holding. I, yep. They might do one more year worth on the Ionic Five for some of the the weird sort of tippy camber changes and stuff. But um, I agree. I'm I'm eager to drive the EV6 and see. But that's and you know, Audi will do the same thing. Look how different the Audi e-tron GT is from a Taycan. Oh, sure. I was actually shocked how different they actually are. Yep. We, I mean, you drove them back to back. You drove a Taycan GTS and an e-tron RS e-tron GT. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, even the, the spiciest Audi is like entry Taycan when you really load it up. Yeah. And it was, it was just more grand touring. I mean, Taycan was like the, the car I'd rather have on Angeles Crest in the corners. Yeah, Taycan's insane. That car is so stiff when you get like a real turbo S, like it's like pulling itself apart. It's so cool. I love it. Yeah. Um, John, can we talk about Ionic 5 really quick though? Because this yeah. is such a hot car. We recently put up a podcast with our friend Forrest, who is a TikToker, but very knowledgeable on electric cars, very knowledgeable um, really on cars in general. And he took one on a, a thousand mile road trip or so. And 1500 mile road trip and it was cold weather and it wasn't optimal conditions. 
Um, but there's two questions I have about Ionic 5. I think you and I can agree the system architecture seems amazing. The styling, the looks, the practicality, the price point, all on the money. Except I think the efficiency isn't panning out to be all that good on that car. And it's a large car, but Forrest was saying he could barely get 180 miles out of it at 70 miles per hour. Granted, this is single direction, but, you know, so there's wind differences. It's not a scientific test. But Forrest's impression was that it really struggled with efficiency. And um, this is on the all-wheel drive version with the heat pump, too. So what do you make of that? Have you heard these rumblings? What do you think? What did that translate to in... Um miles per kilowatt hour it was like 2.4 it was it was low twos okay um pretty bad i had seen reports from other journalists who had short drives that they were getting about four miles per kilowatt hour i did not get that on the drive event that we went on um it was well i mean it was two miles going up six miles coming down but in in the end it worked out to about 3.1 now mm -hmm. that's certainly better than the audi e-tron that i had for five weeks where <laughs> yes. oh my goodness the best i ever got was 2.3 miles per kilowatt hour yeah you need a nuclear reactor in your garage just to keep that <laughs> thing chopped up <laughs> but i love the e-tron um, don't get me wrong i'll deal with the inefficiencies for that charging curve and those massaging seats all day Ah, so it's the massaging seats. Make a note, PR people. Mr. Connor wants massaging seats. Yes. Um, but uh, I would have to spend more time with it. I would say that it is probably slightly better than the ID4 um, if they both have all-wheel drive on the same route. We'll, we'll be testing that very soon, like within a week back or two. To back. Same route next to each other, no aero advantage, same temperatures. We're going to DC charge the cars ahead of time. So they're both warmed up, going to try to make it as, as solid as possible. Um, but yeah, so it's hard to say because it's not a scientific test. This was just a little bit alarming to me, but I had the same reaction as you. We don't know until we get the car in our hands and run it through our procedures. Um, but what do you think about this 50 mile range drop for all wheel drive, including front motor disconnect? What's that about? Um, I have not dug into enough of the tech to understand it really. Um, remember that manufacturers have a fair amount of leeway on what they quote, um, for EPA. You can quote up to what your test showed, or you can quote lower. Yep. Um, so we don't necessarily know who is sandbagging is the wrong term, but you know, who is being more conservative. It's been argued Porsche is being very conservative with its yep. Taycan range um, and who's really pushing to the limits. Um, I was a little disappointed in the Ionic. I need to spend more time with that. I've spent a lot more time in the ID4. Um, and so we'll see how that comes out when they get them in the fleets. But um, I, think, I think the point here really is that none of them approach the efficiency of a Tesla. Now there is some discussion about Tesla um, taking every advantage on its EPA range ratings and not necessarily achieving them in the real world. I'm not sure any EV really does, um, but it's so dependent on drive cycle because the yep. weighting of 
Is it 55% highway, 45% city? Well, it depends if it's five cycle or two cycle, right? Because then uh, there's two true. different- Well, but the combined I'm thinking of, which is yeah, really- Yeah, the combined, what? I'm not, not totally sure. But here's the other thing I think Tesla is doing that no one is. When you look on the Tesla screen and look at your watt hour per mile, which can be translated to miles per kilowatt hour, I think they're looking at- uh, the motor power used and not the full system used like everyone else does. So they're even uh, showing a different number than what's actually true. And so I'm going to do that test because I just hit a hundred thousand miles on my model three that we've done as a long-term test. And I'm about to, I did the day I bought it, I ran it through a whole bunch of initial testing procedures. And now we're about to do the same thing again. And this is what I'm going to keep an eye on because they change our, that's a great explainer. I think that would be really good. Um, I, the efficiency thing, moreover, though, Lucid is sort of top of mind at this moment. Um, and if you look at some of the technology in the Lucid, every single facet of that car has been designed for efficiency by people who designed two or three EVs already. You know, they have Tesla alums. They have alums from pretty much any other electric car company. Um, which is how they can get 520 miles out of what is it, 114, 118? I forget the number. Yeah, 118 faded. Yep. Yeah, compared to how the EQS stacks up in a miles per kilowatt hour. Um, Lucid is slightly better than the best Tesla. You know, the EQS is way behind, and I think the mass market cars are even further behind. Um, so, gets us back to the point of half an hour ago. The Germans really need to understand efficiency as it translates to getting range out of electric cars. Yeah. And I mean, we could go on for four hours because we already have. But before we end, I've, today's the big day. This podcast won't go out for a little while, but it's the Toy sort of uh, announcements winners. And a big shock to me uh, this year with no electric cars winning. Now, last year, the Mach-E won a category, which I believe was the first electric car is that true or no second second the bold ev one in 2017 okay interesting why uh because it was the best car in the judgment of the 50 jurors of the north american car and truck of the year award okay interesting and then so then mach e won remember, its remember in 2017 it had 238 miles of range what did a leaf have yeah but what did it have a model s have and Model 3 was just coming out at end of 2017, right? Um, all right, so, well, well, Tesla, um, frankly, a car maker has to want to be judged, which right. Tesla didn't. You know, it's not like 50 jurors are all going to independently scrounge up a random Model 3 to drive it and vote on it. Of so course. there's a procedure where car makers bring the car to one of several drive events or do a press drive where jurors can go on, et cetera. Tesla, um, Tesla's basic attitude, as we all know, to the press has been a big. Um, right. Right. So the Model 3 and the Model S were not in contention because Tesla didn't want to play ball. That's, that's the hard truth. Um, compared to all, but you know, the Bolt EV was also under 40 grand. At a right, time when the, a very good value and Model 3 was 50, I believe, when it launched or near yeah. as makes no difference. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was very hard to get a Model 3 under about 45, I think, then. I, mean, okay. I don't remember going back then. But 
so A, the Model 3 didn't want to play, and B, the Bolt essentially had twice the range of any other electric car on the market, including the Hyundai Ioniq, the original one, which I kind of like, yep. the Ioniq yep. electric. Super efficient, magically the, efficient car. Oh, the specs for which were frozen about six weeks before Mary Barra had her, oh, and one more thing moment and unveiled the Bolt EV. Right. So, you know, timing is everything. Um, yep. So, yeah, Bolt EV in 2017, Mustang Mach-E last year. This year, it is important to note, and I, for, I'm i an actoid juror, so this is uh, worth noting for the record. Um, this is the first time ever that you've had an electric car as a finalist in all three categories, car, truck, and utility vehicle. You know, you had one electric car in one category in previous years, you know, now all of a sudden you have one EV in the three finalists for every single category. So in the cars, Honda Civic won, the Lucid Air was the EV, it did not. Um, that actually I could makes make it a little bit, just because of the price. I mean, the, the Air, yeah. $170,000 for the Dream, which is available yeah. now. That's That tends not to be, I mean, the Corvette, the Chevrolet Corvette, the mid-engine one, the C8, one one year but still they had, they had a starting price around 50 or 60 or something so you know you're not in the six figures and you know hundreds of thousands of americans buy honda civics every year perfectly good cars um yep. in the truck category that was in my mind the toughest you had the rivian r1t but Great you truck. also had the ford maverick Amazing which is truck. a really really good vehicle yeah <laughs> I, I'm, I can, when I hear great things about a vehicle, I usually go in and I'm disappointed. Um, in this case, I was stunned that it was even better than I'd heard. So, you know, that yeah. was a tough one. And then- I agree with the Maverick because I think that car will mobilize America in many ways, just because of its initial price point, but then also the use prices in a few years, it's all good. I'm into the Maverick. Yeah. And I had one, I mean, one data point is one data point, but somebody posted on a Twitter discussion that I was having, our company just ordered 50. They will replace about half old compact trucks, i.e. Ford Rangers, that people have been hanging onto and hanging onto and hanging onto. So there'll be a straight across replacement for the Rangers and the other half are midsize trucks. So you are definitely going to get more fuel efficiency, less carbon, with the Maverick, especially if a lot of them are hybrids. Of so course. then you get to the utility vehicles. The salient one there was the Bronco, the Hyundai Santa Cruz, or the Hyundai Ionic 5. No, it was GV70, right? Because Santa Cruz was truck. So GV70, oh, right. Ionic 5. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, that's right. Two Hyundais, but they had different badges. Yeah, um, exactly. And the Bronco, and the Bronco won. Um, there is great. a great fondness for Jeep-like vehicles among a chunk of the auto press. Um, I was slightly disappointed that the Ionic 5 didn't win, but Hyundai will have many more chances because they're going to have many more EVs. Yep. Um, yeah, so I mean, at the end of the day, I'm a Bronco guy. Personally, I think Ford is on fire with their lineup right now. They are just hit yeah. after hit after hit, just yeah. absolutely smashing it. Um, Ionic 5, in my opinion, uh, probably not as a transformative vehicle as Bronco, but I think maybe more important of a vehicle 
than Bronco for accelerating our EV world. Bronco is more important to Ford's profits than Ionic will be to Hyundai's profits. But in terms of the future of the auto industry, the Bronco is all very nice, but it's not, you know, it's not moving things forward. Yeah, I would agree 100%. If you're buying a, an off-roading vehicle, you just go Bronco these days. And like here in Colorado, they're everywhere now. And they're awesome and people are modifying them. But Ionic 5 is more of an impressive car, I think, in terms of 800-volt technology available at Monday or everyday prices, not Monday prices, but everyday, you know, someone could essentially achieve that type of vehicle. Comes with great charging plans, really good warranty, the Hyundai build quality and driving dynamics that I think are getting better. So that was a bit I of a disappointment. I very much about availability, however. So, okay, what on Ionic 5? So my dad has found at least 15 cars sitting on lots unsold Ionic 5 that are selling at sticker in Connecticut. You are in, oh, he's, all right. So he's in a Zev state because yep. remember they're distributing to Zev states plus a handful of others. Sure. Um, I will. I should check our local lots. Actually, um, you should. There's tons available in New York, and they're all SEL all-wheel drives for the most part. Yeah. Well, and that's what the better half is gonna want. Um, so, yeah, I should. I didn't. I had actually not realized that they were at dealers as quickly as they are now. Um, I think their but, reservation system's totally messed up. There are people that are going on a reservation system waiting for over a year. And here's my dad walking into this dealer saying, will you give me 500 off? Because this guy's going to give me 500 off in Florida. And they all just have wow. them sitting there. Wow. Yeah. Well, and it speaks to the challenge of dealers selling one or two electric cars. Again, a totally different podcast yeah. for another hour or three. But yeah, um, true, true. I look forward to seeing how the Ionic 5 does. Um, we have to replace the aging uh, Woodstock New York Subaru Outback soon. There you go. So, um, we'll see. Well, I can't thank you enough for coming on. I mean, look, oh. it's always a pleasure to have you, but we should do this more often because we are just scratching the surface of topics that I want to get into. And it's so much fun, I think, to talk to someone who um, really speaks the language. You know, from our world, re relatively speaking, we're new to the EV space. We've been doing this for three years, but there's very mm. few journalists, individuals, influencers that really, I think, have a better um, finger on the pulse than you do. So it's awesome to be able to collaborate with you on these uh, types of podcasts. Your expertise is insane. And so we uh, can't thank you enough for taking an hour out of your day to do this show for us. Compliments will get you everywhere. Thank you kindly. <laughs> it's also the advantage of being really, really old. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about the 1800s on next episode. Yeah, See what that really. looks like. Great pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah. Um, thanks again, John. And uh, yeah, I guess we determined that the Ionic 5 and the Ford Bronco is a good two-car solution. It um, is. <laughs> so we're, I'm, I'm obsessed with two-car solutions lately. I just think they're great. Um, but yeah, everyone, thanks so for tuning in. So not the, not that used iMe. Oh, <laughs> the IMEV is cool, but I think Bronco Hyundai is, is the way to go, Ionic 5. Yeah. Topic for the next discussion, collecting old and historically significant hybrids and electric cars. I've been in the shower today. I took an extra long shower because I said I was I listened to, to a, a thing Doug Demiro did recently on trends for 2022, and it's all off-roaders really picking right. up. What is our generation going like? What's going to go up in value? And I think it's going to be first gen Leafs. Tesla Roadsters will be through the roof. I think Tesla Roadsters already are through the roof. 
Yeah, in the last year they've tripled. It's insane. And so I think it's time I'm to I'm not start sure about first gen Leafs. I would argue the first gen Honda Insight. Mm. Really? Okay, another topic, another show, but this is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> All right, make a note. Have me back. Great. Yeah. This is great. Yeah. Thank you guys. It's great fun to talk to someone who shares the language or yeah. to somebody yeah. plural. So, yeah. All right. Thank Thanks everyone for Take watching. Um, John, is this your Twitter right on the screen here? John. Oh, yes. John. Great. Thank yeah, I wanted to plug, plug that really quick. And then, yeah, you can find us on Out of Spec and me at Jordan Schieffer and Kyle at Kyle Connor. The lights are dimming, so I guess we're done. Uh, thanks, everyone, <laughs> and we'll see you next time. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow-up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW.